Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I know that a lot of Truth and Justice listeners are fitness fanatics. And you all know how important living a healthy lifestyle is. Well, if you're looking for a fun way to get fit, Autumn Calabrese, the creator of the 21 Day Fix, has just launched a new workout program called Country Heat. Autumn has created a really fun way to get fit. Country Heat is a low-impact but high-intensity workout. My wife Becky has just started this program, and she is loving it. And she is not a big fan of dancing or of country music. But every time she does a workout, she comes downstairs dripping in sweat with a big smile on her face. Country Heat is not line dancing, but it is dancing. As you go through the workout, Autumn teaches you a couple of moves at a time, all to the beat of her favorite country songs. You don't have to remember long choreography. Anyone can do this workout. And the people that have been in the test group have already seen amazing results with weight loss and loss of inches. If this sounds like something you're interested in, get in contact with Becky. Her email address is becky at beckysfaithandfitness.com or go and like her Facebook page, Becky Ruff's Faith and Fitness. And on her Facebook page, on August 15th, she's about to launch a Country Heat Challenge Group. This is a place where you can post your workouts and stay accountable with people from around the country. It'll help you get motivated and stay engaged in your workout. And Becky even gives away prizes at the end for anyone that follows the program from start to finish. So don't wait. Jump on Facebook and go to Becky Ruff Faith and Fitness. Get in touch with Becky today and she'll tell you how to get the program. And if you're interested, she'll get you signed up into one of the challenge groups. And there is no charge or cost to participate. So get started today with Country Heat. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. I've said this before, but I have to say it again. I spent this entire week reading and researching transcripts for this episode, and day by day, I am becoming exceedingly more frustrated with the investigation into the Edward Aids case. And today's episode is all about the investigation of the murder of Elnora Griffin. But before we dig into that, it is my pleasure to finally announce that the Truth and Justice Apparel line is finally up and running. If you've been waiting for the opportunity to purchase some Truth and Justice swag, you can do so now at truthandjusticeapparel.com. Now the shop is in its infancy and we'll be adding a lot more products as we go along. But right now we're offering several t-shirts, tank tops, baseball style shirts, and hoodies. Most of the shirts are printed and shipped on demand. But right now, we're offering two styles as pre-orders. The two shirts are black t-shirts, full sport the Truth and Justice logo on the front. One displays loud and proud, free Ed Aids on the back. And on the back of the other one, it says Veritas Equitas. And for those of you that have been asking, those are the tattoos that I have on my forearms. They are the Latin words for truth and justice. 
I actually came up with the name of this show because of those tattoos. These two shirts are on sale right now for $5 off, and they're pre-orders. So get your orders in by the 17th of August, and all the shirts will ship out by the 24th. Everything else on the Truth and Justice Apparel site is on demand, and we print it and shipped as you order them. I'm really excited to finally have this project off the ground, and I can't wait to see the Truth and Justice Army representing. Go check out the apparel line at truthandjusticeapparel.com or just go to my website, truthandjusticepod.com, and click the link to the online store. And now, let's get on with our analysis of the investigation of the murder of Elnora Griffin. Today I'm going to talk less about what Detectives Waller and Hugo did do and a lot more about what they didn't do. The murder of Elnora Griffin was primarily investigated by three people. In 1993, Lieutenant Jason Waller was the homicide detective for the Smith County Sheriff's Department. He would typically investigate cases like this, and he was in fact on the scene on July 23rd, that Friday night when Elnora's body was found, and he's the one that did the crime scene investigation. There was also another detective on the scene who remembered the woman by the name of Melody McKay. Melody McKay's specialty was sexual assaults, and since the initial look at the crime scene seemed to indicate that there was a sexual assault, she was also there side by side with Jason Waller doing the crime scene investigation that night. And the third detective, who ended up being the lead investigator into this case, was Detective Dale Huckel. Now, I know a lot of you have become confused because of all the different cases and all the different players in all the cases. So I wanted to let you know that one of my listeners has created a blog that is a companion site to help track all these people. So if you're confused or you want to research into the background of everyone, you can go to truthandjusticepodcompanion.wordpress.com and you'll find breakdowns of all of the key players on that site. But moving on, Dale Huckel's specialty was robberies and burglaries. He worked in the property unit as a detective. Dale Huckel ended up being the lead investigator in this case because Jason Waller was on vacation. So this is how things unfolded on that Friday night when Elnora Griffin's body was found. Waller and McKay and Huckel had all punched out at 5 o'clock that night. Jason Waller, who again, remember, is supposed to be the homicide detective, had just started a two-week vacation. And I wonder if this vacation doesn't have a lot to do with everything that I'm about to tell you about this investigation. I'm thinking about myself in that scenario. Waller has a very stressful job. He's responsible for the investigations of all the homicides in Smith County. And at 5 o'clock, he had finally punched out, and he has two weeks off. I'm sure most of you have had this experience where you're working hard and you finally get to start that vacation. Once you finally clock out and go home, you get that sigh of relief. For me, I'm going to come home and have a cold beer. Now, I'm not saying that Jason Waller went home and was drinking that night, but certainly he was looking forward to being away from work for a couple of weeks. But then about three and a half hours later, he gets a call and says he needs to come back in because there's been a homicide. And this investigation was a clusterfuck right from the beginning. So let's first talk about what Jason Waller didn't do on that crime scene. When you go on the website and look through the case documents and crime scene photos, one thing that you'll notice is there are no markers on any of these photos. I've never seen a set of crime scene photos that look like this. Typically, every photo you see will have cards sitting next to every piece of evidence with a number on it. 
This is to help the investigators track which piece of evidence correlates to which picture. So, for example, if you found a knife on the ground and you put a card next to it that says number 23, after you've taken all the photos, you would collect the knife, put it into an evidence bag, and you would label it number 23. And then later when you go back and you're documenting in your report what was happening on the crime scene, you can connect your written report to the photographs. Jason Waller never did this on that crime scene. And that's why we have some confusion when we're reading reports and reading trial testimony and looking at photos, for example, in regards to the semen stain on the comforter. He talks about the semen stain on the comforter. There's photos of the semen stain on the comforter. But we don't have a card next to the semen stain on the comforter telling us for sure that item number 34 was in fact that stain. So since Waller didn't label any of those pieces of evidence, we have to read through multiple different trial transcripts and reports to figure out what's what. The other thing that Jason Waller didn't do is put any measurement markers next to any of the pieces of evidence so that we have an idea of the scale and size of the items. For example, we have the feces stain in the kitchen in the middle of the floor. This is the stain that I asked several of you listeners to see if you could do some filtering work on it so we can see exactly what the tread pattern was on that stain. And by the way, an update on that, several dozen people worked on that photo. And there's not a whole lot that it can tell us. You can see that there is kind of a tread pattern in it, but you can't exactly make it out. I can tell you for sure that it did not come from Edward H. shoe. There's no way that I can fit his tread pattern into that smudge. But other than that, I have no idea where that smudge came from. And one of the reasons for that is we have no idea how big the smudge is. When I was initially looking at it, I was assuming it was from around the ball of the foot area of a shoe, that this was a large stain. So I was looking at it trying to piece together a whole footprint. But then when I looked at other photos, I realized that stain or that smudge is much smaller than I thought it was. When you look at some of the crime scene photos where you see the entire kitchen, you notice that the tiles are only about 2 inches by 4 inches wide. Some of them 2 inches by 3 inches. And again, that's an estimation because there's no markers put down. But I'm basing that estimate on judging the size compared to other things in the room. So using that information and going back to the smudge, it looks to me like that entire smudge is only about 3 inches by an inch and a half. So it's not an entire footprint. It's a small piece of a footprint. So altogether, when we look at this crime scene, Jason Waller didn't take some very basic investigative measures to help organize and keep track of the evidence on the crime scene. In all in all, he really half-assed this entire investigation. There are things that he didn't do that would go a long way into helping solve the case. For example, Jason Waller testified that he doesn't know if the phone in the kitchen was plugged in or not. This is just ridiculous and absolutely unacceptable. There's only two phones in that trailer. One of them had been ripped off the wall and is sitting on the floor right next to the other one. And he either didn't bother to check if that phone was plugged in, or if he did, he didn't bother to document whether or not it was plugged in. He just says that he's not sure. And according to his testimony, there's nothing in his report about it. He did listen to the answering machine messages. And he noted in his report that there was a message on there from Leonard Mosley saying that he would be over later. And of course, that's the message that's now missing from that tape. But he didn't bother to document the time and date stamp. The way those old machines work, when you listen to the tape while it's in that answering machine, it will announce the time and date when the call was received. But that's a function within the machine. When you pull the tape out and just plug the tape into any other device, 
all you hear is the messages. So he documented that the message was received, and he took the tape, but he didn't document when the message was received. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And then we have some very strange anomalies in the investigation. For example, the car. Jason Waller testified that the seat of the car had been pushed all the way back and that the radio was tuned to a rap music station and that he had found Jolly Rancher rappers in the car. Well, first, let's start with the Jolly Rapper ranchers. With a lot of these things, Huckel and Waller and McKay can't keep their stories straight. And that's the problem with lying. When you tell a lie, it's hard to remember the lie, and it becomes even more difficult when you have three people trying to lie about the same thing. And to be crystal clear, what I'm saying here is there are a few pieces of evidence in this case that I believe at this point were 100% fabricated after the fact. These Jolly Ranchers are just one example of this. Remember all the way back in episode 210 when Ed was walking us through the entire scenario of how he was interrogated and arrested and convicted. He told us then and he told me today again on the phone that on the night Elnor's body was found that he had went to the bathroom and while he was in the bathroom, he put a Jolly Rancher in his mouth. And before he went back to the office to continue the interview, he threw the Jolly Rancher wrapper in the trash can in the bathroom. He said that right after he walked out of the bathroom, Captain Bobby Gorman walked into the bathroom, and that while he was back in the room doing the interview, Gorman came back into the office with the Jolly Rancher wrapper inside of it. And Waller had testified that he had had a phone conversation with Bobby Gorman while the interview was happening, while Waller was still on the crime scene investigating about these Jolly Rancher rappers. But in Dale Huckel's supplemental report, he tells a completely different story. He says that they conducted the interview in his office, and he also says that it was in Jason Waller's office. But Ed tells me that the interview happened in Detective Huckel's office. I asked him if he was sure, and he said he's positive because he remembers it was a cramped space, there was a lot of people in the room, and there was a wooden plaque on the desk with a police shield that said Detective Dale Huckel on it. But in Huckel's report, he says that they were in Waller's office, that neither he or Gorman or anybody else in the room noticed Ed eating a Jolly Rancher, but that after Waller was done with the investigation on the crime scene, he returned back to his office, and he found a Jolly Rancher wrapper in his trash can in the office. No mention of the Jolly Rancher coming from the bathroom. So their stories don't line up. Now remember, Waller also testified that he processed Elnora's car that night, the night her body was found when he was doing the crime scene investigation. He said that he found in her car several of the same type of watermelon Jolly Rancher wrappers. But if that's true, for some reason he didn't think it was necessary to document that in his report. 
There's nothing in his report about finding those wrappers that night. He also didn't take any photos of the Jolly Rancher wrappers in the car. Then we have the fact that the car seat was slid all the way back. And like I told you in a previous episode, I've heard from several very short listeners that say that they oftentimes or always push the seat all the way back when they get in and out of the car. Now, I want to make clear that that doesn't mean that everyone always does that. That's not proof that the seat being all the way back means that Elnora Griffin had been driving the car. But what that means is that some short people push the seat back before they get in and out of the car. And therefore, even if the seat was back, that is not proof that a tall person was driving. It could have just been Elnora pushing the seat back before she got out. And remember, we're dealing with an early 90s, late 80s model of car that didn't have electric seats. There would have been a lever under the seat and a quick push and the seat's back. But as far as the car is concerned, they can't even keep their stories straight as far as when the car was processed. So Waller testified that he processed the car by himself the night the body was found. He says that he found the seat pushed all the way back and that he found the candy wrappers in the car and that the radio was tuned to a rap music station. But as we've mentioned before, he also said that he didn't have the keys to the car, which would mean it would not be possible for him to know that it was tuned to a rap music station because he couldn't turn the car on. Melody McKay says that she's the one that processed the car, and it wasn't until a week later, five days after the scene had been turned back over to the family, and she had to have one of the volunteer firemen hotwire the car so they could check and see what radio station it was tuned to. But then in Dale Huckel's trial testimony, he testified that he processed the car with Melody McKay on the 29th, a week after the murder, and that's when he noticed that it was tuned to a rap music station. And during cross-examination, Ed's attorneys were asking him if it's possible that Jason Waller had moved the seat when he was processing the car, and Huckel says that Jason Waller didn't process the car, that he had not been in the car before him. But then later in his testimony, he changes his story, and Huckel says that it was in fact him who processed the car, but it was on the night of the 23rd, which is the night that he had taken Ed and his mother back to his office to do the interview. But somehow during that night, he was the one that processed the car. Again, under cross-examination, he's asked if it's possible that Jason Waller had manipulated anything while he had been in there processing the car. Again, he says that no, Waller didn't do it before him. He did it. And then a few minutes later, he changes his story yet again and says that Jason Waller and him were processing the car together that night, that they were both doing it at the same time. So his story regarding the car changes three times. Waller's story regarding the car is not possible. He couldn't possibly have heard what station the radio was tuned to without the keys. And Melody McKay says that she was the one that did it. But we also know that on the 26th, three days before they got there, the car had already been moved, yet they supposedly didn't have the keys to it. And furthermore, whoever checked that car, none of them took any pictures or documented in their reports that the seat had been pushed all the way back. That's something they brought up much later after the fact. So we're supposed to believe whichever one of them is the one that actually processed that car. And at this point, I have no idea who actually did it. But they have a four foot four, extremely tiny woman dead inside the trailer that owns that car. And supposedly they noticed that the seat was pushed all the way back, which supposedly immediately made them think that the killer must be someone who was very tall. They were in the process of interviewing someone who was in fact very tall and they didn't think that was worth documenting the report or taking a photo of it. So I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit on that. My best guess is 
that that seat was not pushed all the way back at all, that it was in a very forward-facing position. And they created this piece of, air quotes, evidence after they decided that Edward Ates was the person that they were going to go after. And also, whoever processed the car did not find any feces inside of the car. Now, this is significant because, remember, it's not like they had no idea what was happening at this point. Dale Huckel testified that they thought Edward Ates was a prime suspect as soon as Kubia Jackson said that Elnora had told her that she was sitting talking to Edward that night and that Edward had said that he didn't talk to her. The reason Ed was taken down to the station for an interview was because right away Huckel noticed that the stories didn't line up. That night, while Dale Huckel was doing the interview, he had scraped the substance off the bottom of Edward Eight's shoes that he assumed was human feces. They knew there was human feces all over the floor in the trailer. They knew they had the smudge mark in the kitchen. And yet, supposedly, they think that the killer, who they believe is Ed Eights, had feces on his shoes and drove Elnora's car, yet they found no feces in the car. And now let's move on to another anomaly in the investigation. Now you can decide for yourself if this was a colossal fuck-up or if this was a complete fabrication. We have the towel that was tacked up over the window. Now you remember that all three investigators, Waller, McKay, and Huckel, all testified that there was the imprint of a very large hand in that towel. And David Dobbs hammered away at this at trial, that this was another piece of evidence that connected Edward Eights to the crime scene because he happens to have very large hands. So first, let's compare the testimony of all three investigators regarding this towel. You have Jason Waller, who says that the night he was investigating the murder, the night her body was found that Friday night, during the night hours before the sun was up, he noticed the impression of the hand in the towel. He said that he and Melody McKay were right there. They both saw it. And at some point, they had Dale Huckel hold his hand up to it to see how big it was. And so let's assume for a minute that this handprint impression did exist in this towel. That towel is one of the few things in that trailer that they know the killer touched. They know that the killer tacked that towel up to that window, which means the towel could possess skin cells for DNA testing. There could be blood on it, sweat. There's a million things they could get off of that towel. And so they supposedly have this handprint on it, and their method of measuring the handprint is to have Dale Huckel supposedly hold his hand up against it. Which, by the way, they did not document in any of their reports. The handprint is not mentioned in any of the three, according to their trial testimony. They didn't take any photos of Huckel holding his hand up to it. Now, I understand that you probably can't see it, but they didn't even attempt to. But they also didn't measure it. If there was indeed a handprint in that towel, even if you couldn't see it that well, they apparently could see it well enough that all three of them knew that it was there. What they could have done was hold a ruler up to it and get an exact measurement. Imagine if they were able to say that from the bottom of the palm to the tip of the middle finger of the left hand or whichever it was, was exactly nine and a quarter inches. That's evidence they could use. That's something they could go take Edward Eights and then measure from the bottom of his palm to the top of his middle finger and see if they fit. But they didn't do it. They apparently made a big deal about it. They were all gathered around. They were holding their hands up to it. They were talking about it. They all think this is a big piece of evidence that ties Edward Eights to the case. But none of them wrote it down in their report. They didn't measure it. They didn't take any photos of it. They just brought it up out of the blue later. 
and this is a prime example, and you'll see this throughout this episode, of rather than gathering evidence and seeing which suspect that points them to, they got a suspect and then started manufacturing or finding evidence that fit that suspect. But the towel is just the same as the car. We don't know when it was found or if it even actually existed. Again, you have Jason Waller saying that he found it on the night of the 23rd during the initial investigation. You have Melody McKay testifying that they found it on the 29th, a week later, and they noticed it because the sun was shining through the handprint, and that's when they could see it. But then she also says that she, Dale Huckel, and Jason Waller were all there when that occurred, except for the fact that Jason Waller was already out of town on vacation on the 29th and was not there. And then you have Dale Huckel saying that he was there when they found it, It was on the morning of the 24th, but it was before the sun came up, and there was no sun shining through it. And he said that he was there on the 29th a week later, where he checked the towel again, but by that time, you couldn't see the handprint anymore. It had dissipated, and it was gone. So we have three different versions of the story as to when they saw this handprint and how they saw it. But more importantly, what Jason Waller didn't do when he was doing the crime scene investigation on the 23rd was collect the towel for evidence. Again, this is one of the few items in that house that they knew the killer had touched, and he didn't even bother to bag it and put it into evidence. That wasn't done until the 29th, a week later, after the home had been turned over to the family for almost five days. In Dale Huckel's testimony, he says that he wrote a letter to the FBI asking them if there's anything they could do with the towel, and they told him there was nothing they could do with the handprint. But when asked where the towel is now, he said that he's not sure, that he thinks maybe Melody McKay was going to send it to the FBI for them to do further testing on it, but that never happened. All three, Huckel, McKay, and Waller testify that the towel is lost and they have no idea where it is. I suspect they never actually collected it as evidence. And if they did, it's just another example of gross incompetence, where again, one of the few items that they know the killer touched they lost, and they have no idea where it's at. Another item that I guess I had kind of read past before, I had noted it, but I hadn't really connected the dots yet as to why it was so significant, is the fact that on that night when Waller and McKay were investigating the crime scene, Melody McKay, who again is the one that handles sexual assaults, was using a luminol-type substance and found that there was semen on Elnora Griffin's buttocks, or something that reacted as though it was semen. So we have a semen stain in the bedroom, a nude victim, defecation all over the floor, and semen on the actual victim's buttocks. So I think that we can probably go ahead and say that, yes, this was a sexual assault, or at least that there was consensual sex right before she was murdered. But what Melody McKay didn't do is swab the stain and send it for DNA testing. This is another piece of evidence that unquestionably came from someone who was in that trailer when she was murdered. It doesn't prove who actually killed her, but it certainly put someone there. When Huckel was on the stand and was questioned about this, he said that he figured that was the medical examiner's job. They determined there was semen on her body and then sent the body for autopsy, and there's nothing mentioned in the autopsy report about the semen. My guess is that the ME didn't even know it was there. Again, this was another piece of evidence that could have answered a lot of questions for us that these three detectives didn't bother to look into. They did send the semen from the comforter for forensic testing, and it came back that based on blood group, 
Elnora Griffin and Edward Ace were both ruled out as donors, and that it was a blood type match to Leonard Mosley. And this is another example of these detectives having blinders on and not having any interest in looking into anything that didn't point to Edward Ace. What they could have done and should have done was then send that semen for DNA testing to figure out exactly who it did come from. But since they already knew it wasn't Edward Ace, they just buried it. They also, on that night when they were investigating the crime scene, found 13 usable fingerprints. They sent these prints to be tested against Elnora Griffin, Edward Ates, and Leonard Mosley. Of the 13 prints, two of them belonged to Elnora Griffin. The other 11 didn't match any of the three. And what they didn't do was try to find other suspects to compare the prints against. Again, once they determined that they didn't belong to Edward Ates, they buried them. They weren't interested in them anymore. They found hairs throughout the crime scene. Some of the hairs found on Elnora's body. And again, they tested those hairs against Elnora Griffin, Leonard Mosley, and Edward Ates. Some of the hairs belonged to Elnora Griffin, and none of them matched Edward Ates. It's not clear in the trial testimony whether or not they matched Leonard Mosley. They just breezed around that. Ed's defense attorneys asked if any of those hairs matched Edward Ates, and the answer was no, he was ruled out as a donor from all of the hairs found on the scene. So I can't tell you one way or the other whether or not they were tested against Mosley, but what I know they didn't do was try to find other suspects to compare those hairs to. And remember, you had Johnny Pryor, Kubia Jackson, Margie, all telling these detectives about the other relationships that Elnora was in. They told them about Lionel Williams, they told them about Francis Johnson, they didn't get fingerprint, hair, or blood samples from anyone else besides Leonard Mosley and Edward Ates. So it's obvious from the very beginning of this investigation that the Smith County Sheriff's Department Justice League was only ever interested in two suspects. Leonard Mosley was a suspect simply because he was the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend of the victim, and Edward Ates was a suspect because of Kubia Jackson's statement. And it's obvious after going through this investigation that the only reason Leonard Mosley isn't in prison, and I'm not saying that he did it because that doesn't seem to matter with the Smith County Sheriff's Department, but the only reason Leonard Mosley isn't in prison was because Ed was an easier target because of Kubia's statement and the fact that Ed lied about how he got to Monica Bush's apartment. So because Edward Ates was an easier target, Leonard Mosley never really got a second look. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, now let's shift our focus to the lead investigator, Dale Huckel. After the crime scene investigation was done by Jason Waller and Melody McKay, Waller left on vacation and Dale Huckel became the lead investigator. From this point forward, he was in charge of everything having anything to do with this case. 
So let's start with Elnora's purse. So the state's theory of the case is that the killer stole Elnora's purse. And they base this on the fact that it was never found on the crime scene. This is right in Dale Hugel's wheelhouse. Remember, his primary job is he was the detective in properties. He investigates robberies and burglaries. So let's first start out with the purse itself. Was the purse taken? Well, we don't actually know. Because during Dale Huckel's testimony, he admits that they never really searched the back bedroom of the trailer. He says that, well, we kind of looked around back there. And they asked if they had checked in the trash cans, in the boxes. And he says, no, they didn't. So it's possible the purse was back there the whole time. He was also shown photos at trial of what looks to be a black nylon bag. Now, I don't have this photo. They were referencing it, but I don't have a copy of this photo. But whatever it was, Ed's attorneys were asking him, is it possible that's the purse right there? And Huckel says, no, I don't think so. But he's not sure. But let's assume that the killer did indeed take the purse. While Huckel was on the stand, it became abundantly clear that he doesn't know anything about the victim. Ed's attorneys were trying to determine if they have any way of knowing how much money might have been in her purse. And through this questioning, we find out that the lead investigator, Detective Dale Huckel, has no idea how long Elnora Griffin has worked at UT Health Center, when her paydays are, how much money is in her bank account. He testified that he doesn't know which bank she uses. He doesn't know which credit cards or ATM cards were in that purse. He never checked into any of this. And this is about the time that I really started to lose my shit reading through these transcripts. I mean, if the killer stole her purse, he could have used her credit cards. He could have passed her checks. These are things that can be traced. All it would have taken was for Huckel to go through her bank statements around the house, her mail, talk to her family, her friends. It would not have been difficult to figure out which bank she used, and they could subpoena the bank records. And maybe there would have been nothing there. But maybe we'd find out that she had written a check the day after she was murdered. If that had been done at that time, right after the crime occurred, they would know where the check was written, they could go to that location, talk to the people who worked there, ask them who wrote the check, maybe there was security footage, or if the killer had swiped her credit card, any of those things. But Dale Huckel never even bothered to check what bank she used. This is just another indication to me that Dale Huckel never actually thought that Edward H. is the one that committed this murder. If there was anything he should have done right, it would be investigate this stolen purse. That's what he does on a day-to-day basis. He didn't investigate any of the obvious leads, the obvious things that would lead them to the killer, like collecting that towel as evidence, like measuring the handprint, or finding out who, if anyone, used Elnora's credit cards or checks. He never had any desire to check on these things, Because I believe that he knew that he would find out that it was not Edward Eights. And he felt that he had a slam dunk case against Ed because he had lied about how he got to Monica's apartment and because Kubia Jackson put him in the trailer the night of the murder. Another fabulous piece of investigative work is the fact that Dale Huckel has no idea who Francis Johnson or Lionel Williams are. Now, he was told about both of these people. Margie directly asked him in her interview if he had checked on the man with the white Corvette, and Huckel tells her yes. But at trial it comes out, he never actually questioned Lionel Williams, and he never actually questioned Francis Johnson. During cross-examination, Ed's attorneys were asking Huckel if in a case where there's a sexual assault, which is what they thought this was, which by the way is what I believe it was, 
if it would be a good idea to talk to the people that the victim was dating. And again, Huckel is saying that, yes, typically when you have a sexual assault case like this, you're looking at someone they were in a relationship with. And Ed's attorney asked him, would it be evidentiary to talk to the people that they have dated? And Huckel's answer fully explains the way that he investigated this case. Huckel says yes if you didn't know who the suspect was. What he's saying here is, yes, normally we would want to look at all these people, but we had already decided that Edward H. is the one that killed her, so we didn't bother looking at anyone else. Let's just look at a list of things that Dale Huckel, the lead investigator in charge of this case, doesn't know. He doesn't know if her purse was actually stolen. He doesn't know what happened to the towel over the doorway. He doesn't know when Elnora started working at UT Health Center. He doesn't know how much money she gets paid or when she gets paid. He says that he also doesn't know why she moved to Tyler from the Dallas area. He never spoke with any of Elnora's boyfriends other than Leonard Mosley. He also testified that he does not even know the make of Elnora's car. That's right, he didn't even bother to document what make it is, much less the model and year. His report only says that it is a small, white car. He doesn't know anything about Elnora's habits or routines. He doesn't know if anyone had a grudge against Elnora Griffin. He doesn't know the relationship between Kubia Jackson and Margie and Edward Ates. He was directly asked during cross-examination if it's possible she had a grudge against them, and he says that he doesn't know. He never even asked. He doesn't know when Kubia Jackson called Elnor Griffin the night she was murdered. He never verified with phone records when that call came in. He doesn't know if the medical examiner actually looked for and or tested the semen found on Elnora's body. On the night Elnora's body was found, Dale Huckel and other members of the Smith County Sheriff's Department questioned several people. When he was interviewing Edward Ates, he asked to look at the bottom of his shoe. He scraped a sandy substance off the bottom of his shoe and sent it to a lab for testing. He testified that when they called Monica Bush, she described the exact clothing that Edward Ates was wearing the night he was interviewed as being the clothes he was wearing the night before. He checked Ed's clothing for any sign of blood. He took pictures of Edward. He checked his body for any signs of a struggle. He looked for scratches, bruises, abrasions, broken fingernails. He made Ed take his shirt off and took photos of him and found nothing on him. But what he didn't do was check Leonard Mosley for scratches and bruises or broken fingernails. He didn't look at Leonard Mosley's clothes. He didn't ask to see Leonard Mosley's shoes. In fact, he didn't check the bottom of anyone's shoes except for Edward Eight's. He didn't check Mosley's. He didn't check Ed's mom. He didn't check Ed's brother, Johnny Pryor, Kubia Jackson, Ed's grandmother, all people that were around the scene that night. He only ever checked Edward Eights for anything. He doesn't know if there was any feces on Monica Bush's apartment carpet. That is supposedly the first place that Edward Eights went right after he, according to their theory, murdered Elnora, and he supposedly had human feces on his shoe, but he didn't bother to check the carpet at Monica's apartment. He didn't check the carpet in Ed's house. He did go into Edward's house, into his bedroom, and checked every item of clothing he had, and looked for anything related to the case in there, and found nothing. He did go out to Ed's house and searched through his trash can, and found nothing. 
He did send Edward's shoes to the lab to be tested for blood or semen or feces or anything else on them and found nothing. But he didn't do this with anyone else. He only ever interviewed Ed twice. He interviewed him the night Elnor's body was found and then again four days later on the following Tuesday. It wasn't until a month later when he got the warrant for Ed's arrest and he hadn't brought him in for questioning any time during that 30-day period. I think when you track Dale Huckel's investigation, we start to understand why we have these anomalies with the Jolly Rancher wrappers and the towel over the doorway and the feces on his shoe and the car seat pushed back and the radio tuned to a rap music station. Huckel was pursuing every lead possible that would lead him back to Edward Eights, and nothing did. They literally found no evidence that Edward was there in that trailer and certainly no evidence that he had killed Elnora Griffin. So they started to manufacture some evidence. That's why these items are not listed on any of the reports from the crime scene investigation the night her body was found. Because they didn't exist. Hugel said that the reason he scraped the substance off the bottom of Ed's shoe was because he smelled it and it had a foul odor of feces. Now this was 24 hours after she was supposedly killed. And yet Monica Bush who he had supposedly went to see right after committing the murder, supposedly having feces on his shoe, didn't smell any feces. And again, he didn't inspect her carpet or take any samples from her carpet because I believe he knew that Edward Aids was not the killer. He wasn't wasting his time looking for things that weren't there or looking for things that would point any other direction other than Edward Aids. He was the easy target. And to prove my point, I want to give you a side-by-side -side comparison of the investigation into Edward Eights compared to the investigation into Elnora's boyfriend-slash-ex-boyfriend, Leonard Mosley. And to refresh your memory on the background of Mosley, he and Elnora had broken up. He was living with his ex-girlfriend and his baby's mother, Angela Walker. But according to his testimony, he was still continuing to go see Elnora every Thursday night where she would cook him dinner, they would have sex, and he would spend the night. There was apparently a message on Elnora's answering machine saying that he was coming over. There was a meal cooked on the stove. Her front porch light was on, and there was no signs of forced entry. These are some pretty heavy indicators that Leonard Mosley went over there that night. So we have two suspects. Edward H. is a suspect because Kubia says that Elnora said she was sitting there talking to Edward that night. And we have Leonard Mosley, who based on patterns of behavior and evidence found at the crime scene, indicate that he was also there that night. Huckel interviewed both Edward Eights and Leonard Mosley the night Elnora's body was found. Huckel asked Edward Eights where he was at the night of the murder. He says that Monica Bush came and picked him up and took him to her apartment. Leonard Mosley was asked where he was at the night of the murder. He says in his first and only interview with Huckel that he got off work and he gave a friend a ride home and then he went back to his house, and he was there by 12.10. So during Ed's interview, Huckel has Deputy Steve Cheney call Monica Bush to verify his alibi. Monica tells him on the phone that night that Ed was there, that he got there somewhere around 10 o'clock at night, and he left somewhere around midnight. But she says she did not go pick him up, that he had shown up there on his own. So we have an obvious conflict in Ed's story. Huckel also interviews Angela Walker to verify Leonard Mosley's alibi. And Angela Walker tells him that Leonard didn't get home that night until 1245. So now we have a conflict in Leonard Mosley's story also. 
But in his case, he has a second person who could confirm his alibi, the man that Leonard supposedly gave a ride home to that night. But when on the stand, Huckel was asked if he contacted that person to verify Leonard's story, and this is his exact answer. Not myself, no. McLean asks, anyone from your office? Huckel says, maybe, possibly, since then, that maybe Detective Waller had, but I'm not for sure. So let's look at the follow-up Huckel takes on this. You have two suspects that both gave you an alibi. You contacted the girlfriend of both suspects, and both of them gave conflicting stories. So how did he follow up with Leonard Mosley? He didn't. He didn't even reach out and contact the person that he said he was giving a ride to that night. But what did he do with Edward Eights? He asked Monica Bush to come in for a recorded interview the next day. In that interview, he asked Monica again about what happened, and Monica again tells him that she did not give Ed a ride, but that he was at her house around 10 o'clock. He also talks to Monica's mother, and she confirms the same story. But he didn't just ask Monica what happened in the way that he did with Angela Walker. Monica testified that the night she got the call from Deputy Cheney, now this is just a couple hours after the body was found, and they really didn't know anything about the case yet at this point. They hadn't even done the scraping from Ed's shoe. She says that Cheney called her and immediately told her that Ed had killed this woman and that he had anally raped her and that she needed to tell them where he really was that night. So they're already, right from the get-go, trying to push to get evidence that would fit the narrative of Edward Eights being the killer. When Monica went into the sheriff's department and interviewed with Huckel the next day, and she testified that she was aggravated with Huckel because he was telling her things about Ed that was not the person that she knew. Huckel also testified that he talked to Monica several times, including making at least one visit to her apartment to talk to her. He continued working on her until her story eventually changed from him being there at 10 o'clock to him being there after 11.20. During his interview, Ed had told Huckel that it takes about 20 to 25 minutes to drive to Monica's apartment. During Leonard Mosley's interview, he told police it takes about 45 minutes for him to get home from Tyler Pipe. Huckel testified that he drove the route from Edward's house to Monica's apartment several times and documented the exact mileage and the exact time it took to get there, and that he believes that route could be driven in less than 11 minutes. Now, this is after not only Ed said it takes 20 to 25 minutes, but Monica Bush also testified that it takes 25 to 30 minutes to make that drive. But Huckel wasn't taking their word for it. But guess how many times he made the drive from Tyler Pipe to Leonard Mosley's house? You guessed it, zero. He never did anything to verify that story. Mosley also told Huckel in his interview that that Friday morning, the day the body was found, the morning after the murder, that he was home and left for work at his usual time about 10.30 or 11 in the morning. Yet Angela Walker told him that Mosley had actually left at 7 o'clock in the morning. You'll remember from a few episodes back, she remembered it distinctly because she was supposed to be to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, and she was awoken to the sound of Leonard getting in his car and leaving, and she looked at the clock and saw that it was 7 and she was late for work. He had gotten up and scattered out of the house without waking her up like he normally does. But what do you think Dale Huckel did about that? Nothing. He never even interviewed Leonard Mosley again. So you have two suspects. Both of them have presented reasons to believe that they may have been the one that committed the murder. Both of them gave alibis that didn't check out. Now in Edward Eight's case, Huckel moves on to checking his body for any scratches, bruises, abrasions. He doesn't find any. He even goes so far as to make him take his shirt off to take pictures, 
pull his shorts up to check his legs, asks to see the bottom of his shoes, scrapes the substance off the bottom of his shoes, and none of these things are out of line. That's actually exactly what Dale Huckel should have been doing. But then you have the parallel with Leonard Mosley. They're literally in the exact same position right now. Both of them are suspects, and both of them have given alibis that didn't check out. But in Leonard's case, he never checked his body for any bruises, scratches, abrasions, didn't check his fingernails, didn't ask about the clothes that he was wearing, never asked to see his shoes, nothing. He took a statement, he checked on his statement, it didn't add up, and then he never contacted him again. When you're looking at any crime scene like this, you're looking for three things to solve the case. Who had the means, motive, and opportunity? Let's first look at means. Elnora Griffin was a 47-year-old woman who was 4 foot 4 inches tall and 104 pounds. Nearly any adult has the means to kill this woman. A 5 foot tall woman could overpower her. Then we look at opportunity. Who had the opportunity to kill her? Yes, Edward Ates could have the opportunity. He could have walked down there and walked into her trailer. Just the same as Leonard Mosley could have opportunity. He goes to visit Elnora every Thursday night after he gets off work. Whether he actually showed up or not, it's very obvious that Elnora was at least expecting him to show up that night. So anyone could have means. Both Mosley and Edward Ates had opportunity. But then we get to motive. What could possibly be the motive for Edward Ates to kill Elnora Griffin? He didn't have a romantic relationship with her. He was not a drug addict. He worked, he had money, he had a place to stay. So somehow in order to create a motive for Edward Ates, you have to figure out why he would have Elnora completely nude, and somehow that turns into him wanting to kill her. Then we have Leonard Mosley, who does have a long-standing relationship with her. He's playing both Elnora and his girlfriend Angela Walker at the same time. By his own testimony, he was hiding the fact that he was still seeing Elnora from Angela, and he was hiding the fact that Angela and he were intimate from Elnora. Also from his own testimony, both had found out about the other, and he had a child with Angela Walker. Now this doesn't present us with a definite motive, but it gives us a wide variety of motives that could have fit the scenario. But Leonard Mosley was never investigated. At all. Any work that was done later to investigate him was done by the prosecution and it was only done in an attempt to rule him out. They weren't trying to figure out if Leonard Mosley had killed Elnora Griffin. They were trying to find any evidence that would indicate that he didn't, so that they would have a stronger case against Edward Ates. This entire case was botched from the beginning, with sloppy, lazy, incompetent police work, followed up with a lead investigator who had blinders on and was trying to manufacture any evidence he could possibly find to try to fit the scenario that he had in his head that Edward Ates is the one that killed Elnora Griffin, when it's obvious all of the evidence points to someone else. And that doesn't mean that that person is the one that killed her, but it is certainly a person who should have been investigated. But Dale Huckel had one goal and one goal only. And that was to charge Edward Ates with the murder of Elnora Griffin. And from the early hours of this investigation, he was operating with blinders on. Edward Ates was not accidentally wrongfully convicted of this murder. He was intentionally railroaded.
Thank you to Johnny Rhodes of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Grupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our editor, Daniel Schaefer, for editing the podcast. I want to thank all today's sponsors, Autumn Calabrese's Country Heat Workout, Stamps.com, and Squarespace for funding today's program. And I want to thank all of you for all of your support as we continue to move forward and investigate these cases. Remember, there are several ways that you can support the movement. You can pledge a monthly donation to the show at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. We now have our new apparel line up and running. You can purchase a shirt to support the show at truthandjusticeapparel.com. Or you can just continue to stay engaged by sending your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com and sending new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.